0: You're listening to audio from Citizen's Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus and answers any questions that you might have
1: about him. Our passage for day for today is out of the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Good morning. Let us start together with a word of prayer. God, we come to you now and
0: we ask that you would grab a hold of our hearts in this time together, that your word would penetrate us and convict us and lead us and inspire us. God, we want to be consecrated to you. We want to be wholly devoted to you. Uh, We don't want to just do the status quo. We don't want to just do the bare minimum, God. We want to follow you even if it costs us, especially if it costs us, because you are worth that, Father, for all that you've done for us. So God, uh, we pray that your Spirit would take this truth, these words, the words of your Son, and impress them upon our hearts and give us a vision for what it's like to follow you, the kind of life that we could lead underneath your Lordship, Jesus. We thank you for Jesus who went to Calvary, who died for us. Now we who have trusted in him are forgiven, clean, clean slate, new life, a new identity. God, we thank you for reconciling us to you, that we can have relationship with you and draw close to you as you draw close to us. And that's what we ask to happen right now. As we draw close to you, that you would come near to us. Amen. So we have a great story for us today to go through, and the three points that I want to walk us through as we head through this story is first the determination of Jesus. I want to observe and study the de- determination of Jesus, but also the motivations of Jesus. What's operating underneath Jesus's uh, no-nonsense face towards the cross kind of determination. What's going on in his imagination? What's going on in his heart behind that determination? And lastly, his expectations that he has has of us. So the determination of Jesus, the motivations of Jesus, the expectation of Jesus. Let's start with his determination. So, just to review the story really quickly, Jesus, as you know, has just raised Lazarus from the dead. This incredible miracle sign. He is the resurrection and the life. It creates, obviously, a ton of hype. He gets a lot of attention. And the opposition now begins to rise. The Pharisees, chief priests, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin all gather their minds together to see how they can plot against Jesus and ultimately and finally get rid of him. He's becoming a huge issue. That's what's been happening in the background of this story. And now we're coming into the final week of Jesus' life, where the opposition is at its most intense point in his life. And this is the, the week before Passover. Passover, it's on a Friday night through Saturday. This is the Sunday before that we're about to read. But before I, I do that, I want to go ahead and, and uh, read one scene to sort of set things up here. So go back with me to John chapter 11, starting in verse 53, setting the scene. John writes this. So from that day on, you know, after, after Lazarus had risen from the dead, from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. So here's what happens. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. The Passover of the Jews, it was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Again, so this is a week before Passover. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come, not come to the feast at all? the chief priests, the Pharisees, had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they might arrest him. So the the scene is Jesus is in danger. Those with power, those with clout, uh, 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 those who know people, have connections, (laughs) have authority on their sleeve, they're hunting Jesus. They're looking for him, to arrest him so they can kill him. They've all agreed that as soon as they get a chance, they're going to put Jesus to an end. But Passover week is now at hand. Passover is approaching. And so the question I ask is, what does Jesus do? What do we see Jesus do now in this story? He enters Jerusalem this Sunday before Passover. He enters Jerusalem even though he knows, he very well knows, that these men are all hunting him and have it out for him. He knows that they're going to work night and day to find a way to arrest him and kill him, but he proceeds anyway. He sees his imminent death. His death is certain. It is absolutely coming around the turn, and he embraces it. Now, if you knew that you were going to die a brutal death in a matter of days, <laughs> what would you do? We, we would seek an escape. We would, we would seek a way to get out of that somehow, right? But Jesus, he did not back down. He refused to back down. No opposition, no danger would deter Jesus from going forward to the cross to that brutal, shameful, horrific death. Nothing stopped Jesus. So on one hand, okay, we see he's determined to go to the cross, very well knowing the painful, brutal opposition that is taking place, okay? So keep that in mind. That's what Jesus is determined to go against. He's not deterred by that in any degree. But the determination keeps going against a different form of opposition, okay? Pick up our story, verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 12 look at what it says. John records this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Literally, millions of Jews are in the city of Jerusalem at this time. Like, they have numbers. If Jesus is going to start an insurrection, they're ready. They, could, they, could, they have a fighting chance against Rome. That's what that means, okay? And keep on going. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now the palm tree branch that was this national symbol for national glory and zeal. The right, like their cry, their anthem as a people of Israel to say, "Our kingdom has come. Our kingdom." And the the, the palm branch. It became popular during the Maccabean Revolt. That was hundreds of years before this, when Judas Maccabeus and his brothers fought against Greece and overthrew Greece. So there's like real revolutionary undertones in this act that they're doing by waving around these palm branches. And then look what they're crying out, Hosanna! (laughs) Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They cry out, Hosanna. Now this line is from Psalm 118. It's sung every Passover in the temple. And in Psalm 118, the scene depicted, if you were to go read Psalm 118, the whole psalm is about a new king who is parading through the city on his way to the temple to be coronated as king. So you can, you can imagine what's in their minds as they're singing, Hosanna! Hosanna, this is the king we've been waiting for. They're saying, let's crown Jesus king right now in the temple and then have at it with Rome. That's what they're thinking in their minds. So there's a lot of hype around Jesus. The miracle of Lazarus has created some hype. It's Passover. That hype intensifies even more. So listen here. If Jesus wanted to establish his kingdom right here, right now, he absolutely could. And listen, he has every right to do so. He is entitled to that kingdom. It's his birthright. If he wanted his glory right here, right, now, he could have it. He could fulfill Psalm 118 right now. He, he is that king who ought to be coronated in God's temple with all the people shouting Hosanna around him. This is his moment if he wants it. The devil had a similar temptation with Jesus. You remember when Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and the devil said, if you bow down and worship me, you see all of these kingdoms of the earth, Jesus, I will give them to you. What's, what's the devil offering there to Jesus. He's offering him a shortcut to glory, the glory that Jesus deserves that's totally rightfully his. The devil in that moment is offering Jesus what's rightfully his without the pain of the cross, the shame of the cross, the horror of the cross, the loneliness of the cross, bypassing all the hard stuff, the high cost to have the glory that he deserves. This moment Jesus parading through the streets on his way into Jerusalem, he could have that same kind of shortcut right here right now. So, on one hand, the opposition is I'm going to kill you, Jesus. Or <laughs> coming for you, Jesus. We're hunting you, Jesus. On the other hand, he could be coronated as king right here right now, shortcut around all the pain to the glory that he deserves. But he is determined to die. No shortcuts. It's not about what he wants. It's about what the Father wants. He has come to do the Father's will. And Jesus' determination that he's not going to give in, that he's not going to compromise, no shortcuts to glory, only the full thing, it's broadcasted in how he parades into the city. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus rides in the city on a donkey. Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus chooses to ride into Zion, into the city of David, Jerusalem, on a donkey. Now, there's a massive backstory behind this that we have to understand to really know what's Jesus actually trying to broadcast in, in this act, this choice to ride in on a donkey. So would it be okay if we did some biblical theology? Would that be okay if we did some Old Testament for a minute? All right. There's a ba- big backstory. So uh, Genesis 49 is where we begin. Uh, Jacob is, is like giving a prophetic, a prophetic word to each one of his sons. He turns to Judah and says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And Judah is the, ki- the line of kings, the royal line. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? You know, this king from Judah, he's dangerous. He's like a lion, okay? You hear that? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff in between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples, binding his fowl to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice divine. He's He's washed his garments in wine, his vesture in the blood of grapes. So this wrathful, powerful picture of a Judean king is associated with a donkey. See that? That's the origin of it. That's how it first begins. But over the course of time, through God's revelation in the Old Testament, we come to Zechariah 9. And here's what Zechariah says about the king. He says in Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the fool, the fowl of a donkey. All right, the Judean king is going to come and do something incredible, right? what happens, though. What's this king going to do? I uh, will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from, the, from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set you, your prisoners free from the waterless hit. Return, your stronghold, oh, pr- return to your strongholds, O oh, prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So the king here, the Judean king, is bringing salvation, but not, of, not, not through swords, not through bow and arrow. He's not going to come and overthrow the enemy. He's going to come and bring the enemy in <laughs> to the people of God. He's going to offer forgiveness to the enemy. See that? It's not a kingdom of war, it's a kingdom of peace. It's not a kingdom of just one ethnic people, it's a global people. So Jesus, by riding in on the donkey, what he's broadcasting to the people is, yes, I am the king you've been waiting for, but this is not the kingdom you're expecting nor the kingdom that you want. I'm bringing a kingdom not marked by brick, brick and mortar, not brought, marked by violence and aggression, not marked by nationalism, but marked by peace, forgiveness. This is not an earthly brick and mortar kingdom. This is a spiritual kingdom. See that? Now, one more detail that's really important as we just get the full sort of message that Jesus is broadcasting. In verse 15, go back to John 12, 15. He quotes Zechariah. He starts by saying, fear not. Fear not. Uh, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, the interesting thing is the words fear not are not originally in Zechariah 9. If you were to go to read Zechariah, those words aren't there. And what oftentimes happens in the New Testament, when New Testament authors are quoting the Old Testament, they'll melt two different uh, passages together into one. So they bring and collapse into like one idea several different uh, uh, things or images or ideas. And so that fear not that John is writing there in verse 15. It comes from Isaiah 40. So John wants us to know that he's not only the king from Zechariah 9, he's also what's talked about in Isaiah 49 through 11. It says this there, go up on a high mountain O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. There you go, there it is. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might right? Might. We love that, right? But look what he does with his might, with his arm. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with him, that are with young. So here's a king of might, a king of strength, who uses his might and his strength to gather us close to himself. So Jesus, yes, he's absolutely king, but he's tender. Yes, he's absolutely strong and mighty, but he's also meek. He's not coming to bring the kingdom that they expect. He's coming to bring a better one, a better one. So Jesus is stepping into the role of that humble king who's bringing about a spiritual salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, everyone watching this then in this time would be a little bit confused they're waiting. They're waiting for Jesus to announce something, and he never does. Instead, what they see is Jesus identifying with that humble king throughout the Old Testament. Everyone's confused about it. Even the disciples, look at, at verse 16. The disciples, they don't get it. It says this, his disciples did not even understand these things at first until Jesus was glorified. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The disciples didn't even get that, what Jesus was really up to. They didn't get it until uh, they were given the Holy Spirit. Even in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after Jesus had resurrected, right before he ascends to glory, they say, is this when he will restore the kingdom to Israel? Like In that moment, they're saying, Jesus, are you, are you going to overthrow Rome now? This is even after the resurrection, and that's not the answer, of course. It's not what's going to happen. They still think things through nationally and politically. Then they receive the Spirit of God, and they were able to put the entire tapestry of the Old Testament together, see the entire message of the Old Testament, who the Messiah would actually be, and then the Holy Spirit applies that spiritual kingdom to their hearts. They finally get it. The whole point of all of this, okay? It's important to know our Bibles, it's important to know the Old Testament message, how Jesus is fulfilling it, but really the main point now we land at is obviously Jesus is determined to go to the cross, to obey the Father's will. No compromises, no shortcuts, he is ready to pay the cost, and he's not flinching, he's determined. So what's what's the consuming passion raging in Jesus' heart and in his imagination as he turns to the cross and without flinching goes towards it. What's raging within him underneath it all? Pick up the story in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to him was that they heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees, they said to one another, "'See, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him.'" You remember back uh, last week when all the Pharisees were gathered together and they said it's better that one man die than the whole nation suffer. Remember Caiaphas the high priest said that and a wicked man, not a good man, but he accidentally prophesied saying what was actually totally true even though he had a different thing in mind completely. Here are these Pharisees. They're, they're mingling together and they say something totally true more than they even know. Yeah, the world has gone after him. That's exactly right. Look at verse 20 and 21. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, some Greek-speaking Gentiles. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So literally, yeah, like, we're supposed to see the whole world. The whole world is actually seeking after Jesus. That global kingdom of people that the Old Testament prophesied about, like, it's transpiring right now before Jesus' eyes. And so look what happens in 22 and 23. Philip went, told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus says this, the hour has come. Now, in reading through the Gospel of John, that hour, the hour, it refers to his death on the cross, his crucifixion. But he's always said before this, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come, but now these Greek-speaking Gentiles want to have a meeting with Jesus, and it alerts him in that moment, and now he says, yep, it's happening right now. My hour has come. It's upon me. Why would Jesus, taking this meeting, him accepting this meeting, why would it cause him to say such a thing? And the reason is because he knows his forthcoming death is for all nations. His kingdom is global. Here are some Gentiles who are likely coming to Jerusalem every year, either to worship or for the spectacle, but now they're coming to Jerusalem to meet Jesus. They're coming to Jerusalem for him. It alerts him of what he already knows that his time is at hand. So Jesus is alerted that his death is fast approaching, but now look how he finishes his statement. And this is what tells us what his motivation is. What's his motivation? Verse 23 finishes The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus, in this moment, he's not only thinking of his death. He's thinking about everything that comes after. He's thinking about his ascension, his return to glory, his return to the Father, his return to heaven with all of us ransomed and gathered with him. He's thinking about the reward and the heavenly homecoming, the harvest that's about to happen because of his death. In the next verse, which we're going to read here in a moment, in 24, it says that when a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it bears much fruit. In verse 26, Jesus says if anyone serves him, they will be where he is, and that he lifts himself up as a model and says, if you serve me, the Father will honor you, implicitly saying, because he's honored me. So what's in Jesus' mind and imagination, his motivations behind his determination to 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 go to the cross is the heavenly homecoming he is about to receive, his return to glory with us as his reward. The moment of glory isn't just his death. It is, but so much more than that for Jesus. It's everything that follows after. So behind Jesus' undaunted gaze towards Calvary was the stirring in his heart of what his death and resurrection were about to achieve he is imagining his kingdom and his co-heirs dwelling together in victory for all time. With him exalted as the firstborn among many brothers, the, first, the firstborn of the dead. Isaiah 53, that classic passage about the suffering servant who Jesus fulfills, that is Jesus, it calls us, who he dies for and takes with us, the spoils. Like we are his reward. We are who Jesus takes with him into the kingdom with Jesus at the front leading the procession. So this entry that Jesus just made into Jerusalem, I mean, this massive, over-the-top, outrageous parade that's happening as Jesus rides on a donkey into Zion. It's just a miniature, pathetic version of the triumphal entry that Jesus leads into glory that's what Jesus is motivated by. That's what Jesus sees at the end of this whole entire thing. Beyond the cross is the heavenly homecoming and the harvest. And That's why he's willing to pay the ultimate ex- uh, cost without excuse, without reservation. That's why he didn't back down. Now lastly, that's what he expects of us. Jesus, with his determination with his motivations in his heart driving that determination, he wants us now to follow him. That's his vision for our life that he wants to now communicate to us. So what we're going to see as we walk through verses 24, 25, and 26 is that Jesus says some tremendous things, and he oscillates back and forth between the cost, the high cost of discipleship with him, of following him, as well as the high reward of following him. And I'm not going to lie, guys. This is challenging. This is a challenge to us. And so get ready. Here we go. Verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, which literally in the Greek is amen, amen. So, like he's really serious. He really means what he's about to say. He's deadly serious about what he's about to teach us. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. What's Jesus deadly serious about? Following his pattern of life. Doing what he did, step for step in, in his stride. Verse 24, it's about Jesus. I mean, he is the seed that falls into earth and dies and bears much fruit, but it's also us because we're following him in his pathway. His way is our way. And just like Jesus was to pay the cost, look into the reward, we're now tasked to pay that same cost and look to that same reward. So Jesus says, unless you're like the grain of of wheat that dies, you will remain alone. If you want a harvest, it's going to come at the cost of your life. Now, if you're fine, okay, if you're fine living a self-centered life, If you're fine living a convenient, insulated, self-protected life, then you will remain alone. It says that, you know, see that dies? That doesn't bear harvest? That doesn't bear fruit? Just remains alone. It won't amount to much. But if you want your life, your very life, to be used by God to generate more life, 30, 60, 60, 100-fold harvest, if you want that to be your legacy and you want your life to matter, what it comes with is a great cost, your very life. And as we're talking about this, like we're in the West, we're not really afraid of being killed. So as we talk about this, and just so you know, as I use this language, we're talking about dying to self. I come second. My life is not about me. The world does not revolve around me. I'm not the most important thing in my day-to-day life. Jesus is. His kingdom is, other people are. And my life, my decisions, my responsibilities, my opportunities, they all revolve around that matrix. God and others, God and others, His harvest. I'm going to pay the cost. So you are that seed that falls to the ground, that undergoes death, so new life can emerge. But I want you to notice one small word, it's really important. He says, unless you fall to the ground and die. Unless, meaning there's no other method. For this harvest We have our sophisticated strategies, we have our methodology, but that's not the strategy. That's not Jesus' way. There's only one option: and it's to die to self. You know how uh, Christianity completely overtook the Roman Empire just in a few hundred years after Jesus's crucifixion? It wasn't because of great preaching. It wasn't because of really good leaders. It wasn't. It was because of the plagues. The plagues hit the cities, and everybody left except the Christians. They stayed, cared for the sick, buried the bodies, and they were dropping like flies. And then when the people moved back to the cities, when those people who were cared for observed what was happening, massive revival Massive turning to Jesus and belief that he is actually the Messiah. And then what had to happen is Constantine, Emperor Constantine, he was forced to declare Christianity as the national religion because that was the only way he could keep up with it. That was the only way he could manage it. It became like an epidemic, like a wildfire he couldn't contain until he just put the stamp of Rome on it. That's Jesus' strategy. Death to self creates the harvest. So as Jesus went, we must go. And now Jesus transitions to verse 25, and again, more of the same. But he uses this uh, teaching device that's called absolute contrast. So it's like severe language, like whiplash language to get the point across, to reinforce the point. Verse 25, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. So if you are first in your own life, and you're right, and your conveniences come first, then you're in danger of losing it all. You're in danger of losing your life. It, what Jesus is saying here is you might not be a follower of Jesus at all then. In your life, if your priority day-to-day is yourself, you might not get it. Like, like, if you got hit by a train, you would not get up and just keep on walking. It would alter your life forever. When you get hit by the gospel, when you When you receive the forgiveness and the grace and the new identity that's found in Jesus, you don't just keep walking the same way. You don't just keep living the same way. It's like getting hit by a train. It changes everything forever. You get altered forever. Like when the light of the gospel dawns in your heart, you spend the rest of your life chasing after that horizon. 25 keeps going. He says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, hate, that strong language, right? It just means deny yourself. It's the strongest of language that we could use to convey self-forgetfulness, that it's not about me. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, look, everybody loves the travel procession. Everybody loves the parade when Jesus is riding into the city and things are great and it's fun and we're singing Hosanna. Everybody wants to be there for that. But do you want to be there for the cross? Are you you ready to be there to carry the cross? Because the triumphal entry, that was just a moment. The cross is a lifestyle. The cross is forever. So will you follow Jesus when the parade is over and all there is is a cross? Jesus says in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Like, that's the standard. I I told you guys this would be a lot. This is like drinking from the fire hydrant. It's intense, but that's the standard. That's the way of Jesus. Our lives are not our own. We, like him, are that seed that must fall into the ground and die, because that's the only way harvest comes about. When uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, he said that when, when Christ calls me, he comes and bid, he comes in to bid and die. Bonhoeffer uh, saw that the Reich was invading the church in Germany, causing all sorts of compromises, all all, all sorts of shortcuts. And so, what he did was he started an underground seminary to train up pastors and leaders who would, who would sort of do a counter-reformation, a counter-push against that compromise within the church. And four days before the war was ended, Bonhoeffer was hung. When Christ calls a man, he, comes, he calls him to come and die. So would you be willing to release rights and comforts and privileges and die to self as long as it meant that your death to self bared much fruit? Does that sound like a life worth living? Would you be willing, let me ask you this, <clears throat> let me say it a different way, would you be willing to fade into the sands of time and be forgotten as long as the name of Jesus is remembered? Would you spend your life doing that, dying to self for the name of Jesus? It comes with the steep price, discipleship does. But if you fully deny yourself for the sake of the harvest, then you will be fulfilled in the age to come. Now, I don't know about you guys. Okay, can I just be honest? When we talk about heaven, we talk about eternity, that we're going to live forever in the presence of God, that does not really make a difference in my day-to-day life. I don't really think about that a lot. That probably, by definition, is not my hope. I think we, we're so caught up in the present, in the moment, instant gratification, short attention spans, like we're just not good at waiting and not getting our reward. That disconnect, that our reward is not here. Our home is not here. We're not going gonna to be fulfilled in this life. There's great things, great gifts of God. We get to see amazing things that God does, yes, but our fulfillment, it's in the age to come. Jesus says this, Mark chapter 10. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. Everything you give up now Everything you go without now, that dying to self and releasing of rights and privileges and comforts, you will have restored to you one hundredfold in the age to come. As Jesus says next, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Following Jesus means we do what he did. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Mm. Where's Jesus now? That's where we're going to be. Where's Jesus now? He's at the right hand of the Father, sending and receiving glorious love back and forth between Him, just this deluge of love. John 17, let me read this to you. He says, Father, Jesus is praying. He says, Father, I desire that they also, you and me, they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. All moments of ecstasy, all moments of pleasure in this life, they're just a flicker of the light to come, of the world to come, of the reality that awaits us. Where Jesus is, is where we will be. Verse 26 continues, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The exaltation that Jesus received is the exaltation that we will receive. He's resurrected, will be resurrected. He is commended, we will be commended. He enters into the joy and pleasure of the Father. We will enter into the joy and pleasure of the Father. Um, we've been reading like children's version of Pilgrim Pro- Pilgrim's Progress to Harper at bedtime, which is dense for sure. Um, but I've been, I've been checking it out in my own time. Uh, like the real version of it that John Bunyan wrote, and the end of Pilgrim's Pro- progress ends like this. Uh, it says it says this Christian hopeful the two characters, they arrive to the celestial city, heaven, and this is how it ends. The men then asked, What must we do in the holy place, the celestial city? To whom it was answered, You must there receive the comfort of all your toil, and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and suffering for the King by the way. In that place you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One, for there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise, with shouting and thanksgiving whom you desired to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing, your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the mighty one. There you shall enjoy your friends again that are gone thither before you, and there you shall with joy receive even every one that follows into the holy place after you. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city beat, rang with joy And that it was said of them, Enter into the joy of your Lord. I also heard the men themselves, that they sang with a loud voice, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Jesus expects us to pay the cost. There's no doubt about it. There's no wiggling out of that. It's a high cost to pay. Fall into the seed. Fall into the ground and die. But the harvest... But the heavenly homecoming is just as legitimate, just as much offered, just as serious. Remember, says, truly, truly, I say to you, yeah, pay the cost, but also, look what's coming your way. Everything we've given up, everything we've given up will be restored to us a hundredfold. So to follow Jesus in true discipleship for each and every one of us, it's gonna look different. We're not, I don't think any of us are gonna be literally giving our lives. Jesus right now, but it will cost you yourself. And so what does losing your life and hating your life and serving Jesus and following Jesus look like right now? What does that look like for you? Think about that. What does it look like for you to follow Jesus right now in this way? For some of you, it's parenting. It's dying to self every day, with patience and long suffering as you just teach your kids and instruct your kids and form your children with prayer and love and nurturing and just paying that cost. It's exhausting. You don't sleep as much as you used to. You get frustrated, but you just throw yourself into that and die every day so that fruit is bared in your kids. For some of you, that's what discipleship, following Jesus in his steps following right behind him looks like for you right now is dying to yourself for your kids. For some of you, it's serving your spouse. For some of you, it's respecting your husband, loving your wife, serving them, being humbled to them, accommodating them, dying to yourself, putting yourself second so that they flourish. Imagine two people in a marriage outdoing one another in love, outdoing one another and showing honor. That's what Jesus is calling you to today as a husband as a wife, to die to yourself for the sake of the other, no strings attached, no expectations or demands for their sake, for the glory of God and for their good, for the glory of God and for their good, and I am not a a part of that equation, like no self-referential part of that, I'm not involved in that, we're not involved in that, serve one another, for some of you, it's just serving others, you know, some people, some people even in this community, in this church, just need a friend, She needs someone who's going to actually walk alongside them and invest themselves into someone else. For some of you, you got margin and you got time. Discipleship right now, it might just be being someone's friend, committing to somebody, walking with somebody, getting out of your comfort zone, getting out of your clique, and seeing a need and meeting a need and loving somebody who needs to be loved. For some of you, it might be killing sin. Just turning from sin and being resolute about sin, confessing it, repenting of it, starving it, doing whatever it takes to turn from sin and get out of those patterns and get out of those addictions and get out of those ways of thinking. Doing whatever it takes to be consecrated unto God. To have your heart gripped by Him and hate sin and and no longer want anything to do with it. No more compromise, no more shortcuts. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what discipleship looks like for you right now. But for all of us, it's repenting of reservations. It's repenting of fear. It's repenting of being in love with the world. This age, the way of life, it's not our destiny. This is not our home. We can't take anything here with us. Bear with me just a few more minutes. I have some closing thoughts. That was not my closing thoughts. These are not my closing thoughts. Just as we, this is intense, okay? This is a high call and a high reward. It's not for the faint of heart, but this is the direction we're going as a church. We're all in. We want to be a part of what God is doing, and this is the kind of people he calls to take part. So some closing thoughts. I would really like to soften this. Believe me, I would. Like, I hate conflict. I'm so averse to conflict and intensity, but the more that God has invited me to daily crucify myself, the more, not perfectly, but the more that I answer that call, the more I realize that this is who God uses, people who die to themselves, people who are not concerned about their convenience and glory. This is who God uses. This is who God is real to. And so the more I'm realizing that, the more I'm okay being a little bit intense. The more I'm okay being being. Uh, Conflict oriented. And when you come to a text like this, you know, you can either lean out of it or lean into it. And a sermon's tone should match the text's tone. The tone of this text is intense. And this is what God wants us to be truly following Him. I'll be honest, guys. I I used to want a big church, I used to want a growing church. I cared so much about numbers, I cared so much about how things were going, about outcome. I'm not interested in that anymore. My heart, our hearts as pastors is what kind of people are we going to be? Not concerned about outcome, but faithfulness and obedience and maturity and wisdom. Who are we becoming? What's being formed within us? Are we status quo, comfortable disciples of Jesus or are we really taking the call to pick up our cross daily and follow him? I'm not concerned about numbers. I'm not concerned about growth. I'm concerned about what kind of church are we? I want us to be crucified with Christ, no longer us who are living, but Christ living within us. Second thought, closing thought. Jesus' way is countercultural. It's so different. It's so, so different than, than, than the present time, than how we've been conditioned to live and think for so long. It's so different. Today, we live to be impressive. We live to be remembered. Jesus says, die and be forgotten. Today, we live for the moment. Jesus says, live for eternity. Today we live for power and success and glory and renown, but the way of Jesus is different. The way to power is to give it up. The way to success is to serve. The way to glory is through humility. The way to renown is to be forgotten. Totally different. The kingdom of God, it turns everything upside down. It's a totally different way of thinking and living. Amy Carmichael was a Presbyterian Scottish, uh, uh, Scottish Presbyterian who became a missionary to India. And when she was like 18 years old, her and her brothers were helping this elderly lady in the rain, gets to her house, and she was so embarrassed. She, I mean, she was getting poured on, it was raining, and they were helping this helpless person, and she was so embarrassed. And then God brought to mind a verse for her and impressed upon her mind. It was 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 13. I think it's going to be on the screen. And this is the verse that was brought to her mind. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Talking about ministry, talking about what you're vesting yourself into. What are you building? What are you doing? Each one's work will become manifest for the day we'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, what does it say there? He will receive a reward. He will receive a reward. And she She wrote that that verse came to her mind so powerfully and vividly that she thought God was literally talking to her. And she said, I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. The blinding flash had come and gone. The ordinary was all about us. We went on. I said nothing to anyone, but I, listen to this. She says, I knew that something had happened that had changed life's values. Nothing could ever matter again but the things that were eternal. Have you had that ever happen to you? I remember talking to a midshipman like several years ago where he was involved in, in BCN, the ministry I was working with, and he was, he was loyal, he was there, he showed up. He loved, he loved the Lord, he loved Jesus. You know, he, he was in. But then something snapped, like something shifted. And he became a different person. Just following Jesus radically. I talked, I, was, I remember sitting down talking to him. I said, what happened? And he just said, there's been just this seismic shift within me where everything has been reoriented. What used to matter, doesn't matter. Now what only matters (laughs) is things that are eternal. Have you ever had that happen to you? That kind of encounter with Scripture, that kind of encounter with God, that kind of moment where you realize, oh, this world in its present form is passing away and the only things that are going to last are are things that are eternal. I'll live for that. Third thought to close, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. So I know this is a lot, but it doesn't have to feel like that. And this is true because Jesus says that what's promised for us is the age to come, right? That's the reward. Well, guess what? The age to come is already presently felt and experienced now because we have God within us, his presence within us, the spirit who abides within us. So in measure to a degree, the age to come, we live in it now. The key to making discipleship with Jesus a lifestyle that's like breathing, that's easy, not burdensome, is to have it be an overflow of your time with God. It has to be an overflow of your time with God. So if you're not coming to the fire to be warmed, if you're not coming to Scripture, if you're not in prayer you're not with others being built up by others if you're not coming to the fire of god to have your heart stirred and warmed by him then this is going to seem over the top and outrageous but if you do that for just even sometime it will only make sense it will become easy not a burden last thought do not delay obedience do not delay your obedience so we can leave here and we could sing a song, we're going to sing a song, we'll take the Lord's Supper, and we could go to lunch. We could do that, and I'm sure we will. But before we do, there's something that God has put in your heart for a long time now that you've been too scared to do. Each and every one of us have that. There's something that God has put within you, asked you to do, maybe a call to ministry, a call to greater service, a call to greater commitment, something that God has put in your heart that you've been too scared to do for a long time now. Don't delay your obedience. Follow Jesus. The seed that falls into the earth and dies will bear much fruit. And so answer the call. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want the substance of your life to be? Closing with this one last thing. There's a guy named C.T. Studd, 1860, professional cricket player, was saved. Guy got a hold of his heart. He gave up cricket, very wealthy got an inheritance from his father, gave it all away, became a missionary, was one of the first uh, recruits by Hudson Taylor to go to China, then came to America, he was British, and then he went to Africa and died at 71 in 1930. He wrote a poem that's very famous called Only One Life Till Soon Be Past. Uh, ben, go, go ahead and come on up here and, and we're gonna go ahead and close here. But what I want us to do, I wanna read this poem for you, but I want it to function as a prayer. So I, I wanna invite you to stand up now, Okay. And it's going to be behind me on the screen. You don't need to read it. You don't need to, to say anything audibly. But I just want to read this and let it wash over us and let this be our corporate prayer. And then, and then we're going to enter into a time of celebration together through the Lord's Supper. So if you're here and you're a Christian, come down, come down the middle. Uh, when we conclude and, and grab the elements and head back to your seat and we'll uh, partake of the supper together. But I want to read this for you. You can follow along with me uh, in silence. And let this just be a heart cry for us as a people. Here's what he writes. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years. Each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then Lord, help me with joy to say, only one life Twill soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, twill soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. Let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, Twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life twill soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.